Well, today we are talking about baptism. Huh. What is baptism? What does it mean? Who should be baptized? Why do some churches baptize infants? And some churches baptize people after they make a profession of faith. Why do some churches baptize by sprinkling and others by immersion or putting people totally under the water? So that's, that's what we're going to look at. So, you ready? Um, we start out, and there's a little question about whether we should call baptism an ordinance or a sacrament. The Roman Catholic Church calls baptism and, uh, and the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, they call them sacraments because they teach that sacraments actually convey grace to people uh, by participating in, and grace in the sense not just of blessing from God, but moving you along toward uh, greater purification so that you will become acceptable to God uh, and become justified before him. And some Protestants use ordinance because baptism and the Lord's Supper were ordained by Christ, and they're a little bit hesitant to call these sacraments because of the Roman Catholic view, and they don't want to sound like, oh, we hold to the Catholic view. But other people say, well, we don't care if we call them ordinances or sacraments. And if you look in an English-language dictionary, it gives two uh, definitions. A sacrament can be a symbol of grace, or it can be something that actually conveys God's grace to people uh, when it's performed. So the word can mean either one. And I really don't think too big a deal is is at stake there. It's just what word you're going to use. And I can use sacrament or ordinance anyway. Baptists are really particular. They don't like the word sacrament. They like the word ordinance. I'll just mention that to start. Is this a major doctrine? I don't think it's a major doctrine that should be the basis of division among genuine Christians. Um, and many, many Christians who have um, uh, just beliefs that are the same on the Bible as the word of God and salvation through faith in Christ alone and many, many other things will have differences on this. Uh, and very conservative, our very conservative friends among Presbyterian churches and conservative Lutheran churches, conservative Methodist, conservative Episcopalian churches, will, uh, many of them will believe many and many of the same things that Scottsdale Bible Church would believe, uh, but they will baptize infants. And so there's just a difference on that. In fact, some of you know about the denomination called the Evangelical Free Church that Margaret and I belonged to for a while, and actually Wayne and Bev served in for a while. Um, I don't know if you know that Wayne Leaston was the pastor of North Suburban Evangelical Free Church in Deerfield, Illinois, when our children were in Awana at that church. Whoa, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, I don't know. Anyway, back in, in earlier centuries. Um, and so, and that, and the Evangelical Free Church denomination comes out of a historic compromise where they'll let pastors do infant baptism or believer's baptism according to their own conviction. And if you have a pastor in your church that doesn't hold infant baptism and you want an infant to be baptized, they'll bring in a pastor from another church. So they've kind of held together a compromise over this, and, uh, but held to um, um, you know, faithfulness to Bible teachings on, um, on every other area. So, so I don't think it means it should be a division among genuine Christians, but it is a matter of importance for ordinary church life. And I should say... Historically, it was important. When I first wrote um, the draft of my book, Systematic Theology, and sent it into the editor in England who was working through it, and I said, well, you know, this isn't a very major doctrine, he wrote back, he said, well, Wayne, just remember that historically it was very important because in the 1520s and 1530s in Germany and Switzerland, 
the first Baptists were standing for the principle that you could have a church for believers only. And it didn't have to be a church that everybody in this town in Switzerland all belonged to the same church automatically by, by being born there. And they'd automatically be baptized into it. And so when the early Baptists started, they were standing for a principle of voluntary church membership. You didn't just automatically become a member when you're baptized as an infant. And see... If you, have a, if you have a situation where you're born as an infant into a community, you're baptized into it, you're automatically a member, well, you can get a lot of unbelieving members of churches after a while. I remember a couple of years ago teaching along uh, at a conference in Europe along with a, a really godly professor from Sweden, but he was very troubled. He was Swedish Lutheran, but he was troubled about the majority of people in Sweden who don't ever darken the door of a church, but they still belong because they were baptized into it as infants. And he said, sometimes they'll join another church too. He said, sometimes when you go to elect a new pastor for a church, you have more people voting in the town than actually are citizens. <laughs> because, because everybody just automatically belongs. And, uh, and so you get a lot of what we would call unregenerate church membership if you just have people automatically assuming they're born into a town, they're baptized, and they never go there again until they're married or they die. Um, and so early Baptists in Germany and Switzerland started to stand for the idea that we want a church of believers only, and, and in England as well, they did. But this editor wrote back to me, he said, they were put to death for their convictions, not by the Catholics, but by the Lutherans and the Reformed Christians who disagreed with them. And so that made me realize that in different historical situations, a doctrine can, can assume a lot of importance. And the doctrine that you don't have to, you aren't a member of a church until you voluntarily decide on your own to become a member and to profess faith, that's something we take for granted, but it was purchased at the cost of many thousands of people's lives to have that freedom. And so we're thankful for it. And it is a matter of importance for ordinary church life Actually, when you start a church, you don't have to agree on baptism until the first baby is born. <laughs> and then a church has to make a decision. Are we going to baptize this baby or not? And uh, so it commits itself one way or another. And that's why it's, it's, all of the evangelical free church has this compromise that's really unusual. And most denominations either do one thing or another. Well, now there are two positions on this among Protestants. There's what's called believer's baptism, or I'll call it a baptistic position, and that's the position I hold. And then there's a, a position called that's, uh, that holds to infant baptism, and the technical term for that is paedo-baptist. Uh, the Greek word paid from pice child, and then in different forms of that word, it gets the P-A-I-D, paid root. That means child baptism, or as it's practiced then, infant baptism. So that may be a new word for you, but paedo-baptist is a person who baptizes uh, the infant children of believers. My position is baptistic, that is that baptism is appropriately administered to those who give a believable profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But I always like to tell students where they can look for a good representation of another viewpoint. And that's a book I used to teach from, Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. It's in your notes. He gives a good 
responsible argument for the paedo-baptist or infant-baptist position. Well, we'll come to that difference in a few minutes, but first uh, I want to just get some preliminary things out of the way. And one is, uh, well, not in a way preliminary, but some other things. Uh, First, the mode and meaning of baptism. Mode means how do you do it? I think the mode should be baptism by immersion, which is the person going totally under the water. The Greek word baptizo means to plunge, dip, immerse something in water. And there really, I don't think, um, are any good counterexamples to this. In the Greek language at the time of the New Testament and prior to the time of the New Testament, baptizo meant to put something under water. If a ship sank at sea, baptizo would be the verb. It's used for it. It, it, it went under the water. And, it, and um, if something was plunged into the water or somebody drowned, it was baptizo. That was go, to go under the water. And, and so um, that was just the meaning of the word. And the sense immerse, that is put totally under the water as, far, as opposed to pour water over or sprinkle water on, is appropriate to many New Testament passages. And I think probably it's the only meaning that really fits well in a number of passages. So... Mark 1.5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him, that's John the Baptist, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And they were baptized by him, and N, N plus dative, that's in the river Jordan, not beside it. And Mark 1.10, and when he came up out of the water, this is Jesus being baptized, came up out of the water, immediately saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him, uh, uh, on him like a dove. And again, the Greek word ek plus the genitive case means out of, something coming out of the water. It doesn't mean Jesus came away from the water. That'd be apa, a different uh, Greek preposition. But here he, it, it implies that he was in the water and he came up out of it. That, I think, means he went under the water. Um, John was baptizing, John 3.23, John was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Well, if it's just sprinkling, you didn't need plentiful water. You just need a little bit. But baptism by immersion, you need enough to go under the water. And Acts 8.36, the Ethiopian eunuch, Philip is passing along and and, uh, goes along the road and comes to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, He's pointing out the window at the chariot at enough water to go under, apparently. If it just he needed a little for sprinkling, he could have held up his little plastic water bottle and said, see, here's some water. <laughs> well, no, he didn't, he didn't have a plastic water bottle, but leather or whatever, uh, whatever water they were carrying for drinking. But he didn't do that. It's when they, they came to some water along the side of the road. So again, I think he's assuming there's enough. And in that same narrative... Uh, they commanded the, he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him, and they came up out of the water. So again, it's a picture of total immersion. In addition to that, the symbolism of union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection seems to require baptism by immersion. So baptism is a picture of going down into the grave and coming back up out of the grave, Romans 6, 3-4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Colossians 2.12 have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So there's a picture of going down under the water and coming back up out of the water. It's a picture of going down into the grave 
coming back out of the grave. When Margaret and I first went to England in 1973, when I began doctoral work in New Testament, we began to go to a Baptist church, and it was an older building, and the Baptist church, right under the pulpit, was a trapdoor that would lift up, and there was the baptismal tank, and it was shaped like a coffin. You could not mistake that distinctive, what, one, two, three, four, five, six-sided shape that was the shape of a coffin. And I thought, whoa, what kind of baptismal tank is it? But after a while, I thought, wow, how beautiful, because it's a picture of I'm dying, and I'm rising again with Christ. Dying with Christ, my sins are paid for. Rising again, I walk in a new life. It's a transformation of life picture, as well as a cleansing, of course, from, with the water. And so it was a beautiful picture. And when we would witness the baptisms in that church, they were powerful in a sense. Now, the church got a new building a block away, and, it's in that, and they didn't reproduce that uh, shape of the baptismal tank for whatever reason. I don't know. Maybe they thought it was too shocking. But, uh, but there was a truth that was being conveyed there, and that symbolism of death and resurrection with Christ isn't so well conveyed by sprinkling or just pouring water over someone's head. So that's, an, that's not just the historical narrative reasons, but there's a symbolism. I could also say, because I don't remember if I have this in the rest of the presentations or not, it's not just the symbol of being buried and coming back to life. There's another symbol with if you have an understanding of the Old Testament background of going under the water. You think of the waters of the flood. What happened to the people who had the flood come on them when Noah, in Genesis 6 to 9? They died. It was God's judgment. What happened to the Israel, no, the people of Egypt when the Red Sea closed back on them? They died. That was God's judgment on them. And when Noah was cast over the ship, going down into the deep, he thought he was going down to his death. So, so going down under the water, in a way, has these echoes of a picture of God's judgment as well, especially from the flood. And so going down into the waters of baptism, in a way, is, going, is, is submitting to God's judgment, but you are kept safe through it. And you come back because you're with Christ. And so you come back up out of the waters of judgment, as well as the water, as well as a picture of death. It's a picture of going through judgment safely and coming up to life. And that's, that, adds, that, that, that makes it a beautiful, a beautiful picture. Now, a person who doesn't hold to baptism by immersion would object to me and say, well, wait, wait a minute now, come on now. Now, the symbolism, the, the, the essential thing symbolized in baptism is not death and resurrection with Christ. The essential thing symbolized is purification and cleansing from sins. Doesn't Titus 3, 5 talk about the washing of regeneration? And so this being born again, this regeneration is pictured as a washing, as a cleansing. And Acts 22:16. why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So isn't there a washing? And isn't it obvious? Water washes you. And so, you know, take a bath. You're, you're, you're cleansed. And so baptism is a picture not of death and resurrection, but of cleansing. My answer is, it's, it's, it's both. That is, 
To say that washing away of sins is the only thing or even the most essential thing pictured in baptism doesn't faithfully represent the New Testament teaching. I agree. It is washing also that's represented. Of course. Of course washing is represented. Water cleanses you. That's obvious. And there's, there's no mistaking that. But it's not the only thing. Because there's this death and resurrection that's also symbolized. Colossians 2.12 Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. And we looked at Romans 6, 1 to 11. So my conclusion is that both from the narrative passages that talk about going down into the water and coming out of the water, and from the symbolism of going to death and resurrection, baptism by immersion, by going under the water and coming back out, is the, one, is the, is the form that the New Testament used, and it's most consistent with the New Testament teaching. Now, how would I answer that if I were a paedobaptist? I guess I would say, well, we intend the little bit of water to symbolize the whole. And so we intend it also to be a symbol of going through God's judgment and death and resurrection. It's just symbolized by a small amount, and the amount isn't important. That's what they would answer. And I'd say, well, look, you've got a New Testament picture here. Why not follow it? Okay, who should be baptized? This is the more controversial issue. Um, the subject of baptism. Should infant children of believers be baptized or professing believers? And this is a difference among uh, Christians, uh, a difference among friends with whom we differ, uh, with whom we agree on many other things, as well as a difference with Roman Catholics who even view it in a different way, uh, but they also baptize infants. And I'll, I'll get to those two different approaches in a minute. First, my argument is that should, we should give baptism to professing believers. And the argument from the New Testament narrative passages on baptism gives an argument for believers, uh, at least to start out. Who is it who, that we can tell who were who is it that was baptized in the New Testament stories? Well, Acts 2.41, it tells you. It's those who received his word were baptized. That has to be people who are old enough to understand it and receive it. <clears throat> so that, that seems like it's, it's believers. Acts 8.12 in um, Samaria. When they believed Philip as he preached the good news, they were baptized, both men and women. So, again, it's, it's once they had believed. And that indicates not infants, but those who were old enough to understand and then come to saving faith. Acts 10, 48 to, 44 to 48, uh, Peter... Uh, is speaking to the household of Cornelius here, which is Gentiles. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, those who heard the word, and the believers were amazed. The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out of the Gentiles. They heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? But it's those who heard the word. They were... They were they were hearing and listening, and then uh, God imparted faith to their heart. They believed, and then uh, the Holy Spirit was given to them, and so baptism was given to those who had, been, uh, who had received the Holy Spirit in a regenerating sense, believers. Acts 16, 14 to 15, in Philippi, <clears throat> um, talking about Lydia, a seller of purple goods who had come from Thyatira, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she heard just saying. And so 
<clears throat> Again, once she believed, then she was baptized. You say, what about the household? I'll come back to that. <clears throat> so these seem to be uh, believers, and there's no clear instance, there's no clear instance in the New Testament where an infant child of believers is baptized. Then there's an argument from the meaning of baptism, and this is kind of a, a central argument. And here's, here's what I'm thinking on this. And that is, the outward symbol of beginning the Christian life should only be given to those who show evidence of having begun the Christian life. That is, baptism is a symbol of going down into the water, down into death, and coming up to walk in a newness, newness of life. <clears throat> it's a symbol of being born again and having faith in Christ. It's a symbol of starting the Christian life. Well, why give that symbol to someone who hasn't started the Christian life yet? Who hasn't been born again yet? You're giving a mistaken symbol, I think. So, <clears throat> so Paul could say, for instance, in Galatians 3.27, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I don't think Paul would say that of infants in the whole province of Galatia. See, I, I don't think... He couldn't say as many of you of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's a salvation expression. Well, he can't be sure about infants. They haven't trusted in Christ yet. So, so I think it's a, it's a symbol of beginning the Christian life. Romans 6, 3 to 4. All of us, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that we too might walk in newness of life. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. So <clears throat> it's picturing death and resurrection with Christ. It's picturing the beginning of the Christian life. Now, <clears throat> there are two alternative positions. So that was my argument. People who make a profession of faith then should be baptized. There are two alternatives to that. One is the Roman Catholic alternative. <clears throat> so alternative number one the Roman Catholic view is that baptism should be administered to infants. And why they think that's important is that baptism is necessary for salvation and the act of baptism itself causes regeneration. It causes you to be born again. If you were to ask a Catholic friend who kind of knew about Catholic theology or a priest, for instance, or maybe just a well-trained layperson, you say, well, when did you become a Christian? The right Catholic answer is, when I was baptized as an infant. Um, and so <clears throat> here, Ludwig Ott, kind of an older classic explanation of Catholic doctrine says, even if unworthily received, valid baptism imprints on the soul of the recipient an indelible spiritual mark, the baptismal character. The baptized... The baptized person is incorporated by the baptismal character into the mystical body of Christ. So, so baptism saves people. Every validly baptized person, even when baptized outside the Catholic Church, becomes a member of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Baptism by water is, since the promulgation of the gospel, necessary for all men without exception for salvation. That's pages 355 and 356. Now, a more recent statement of Roman Catholic doctrine, which I've in the past recommended that you buy if you want to be familiar <clears throat> with current teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the officially endorsed 
um, manual of Christian doctrine endorsed by the Pope. Um, and that's 1994 sections. I'll just read you a couple of sentences here, or three or four. Um, on section 1213, through baptism we are freed from sin and reborn as sons of God. And 1215, baptism, it's talking about baptism. It says, it signifies and actually brings about the birth of water and the Spirit, which you must be born of water and the Spirit. So it, it actually brings it about. It not just signifies it. And then section 1250. The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. Well, if you believe that, then it's very, 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 very important to you as a Roman Catholic that your infant child be baptized because it, it causes salvation. And... What could be more important than that? And some of you, coming from a Roman Catholic background or having a Roman Catholic family or relatives, you understand and you remember how that is so important um, uh, to a Roman Catholic person. And then uh, 1263 to 1266, similarly, um, by baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original sin and all personal sins as well as all punishment for sin. Baptism makes uh, the, the neophyte, the new uh, Christian, newborn person, a new creature, an adopted son of God. So, um, anyway, that is, that is current Roman Catholic teaching. My response to that is, salvation doesn't depend on any act that we do, any work. And baptism is an act or work. Salvation depends on faith alone, not on faith plus works. And so... When I read in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, I come to that conclusion. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not you have to believe in Christ and be baptized, or, as an infant, be baptized even without believing in Christ, but... It's just that salvation depends on faith alone. Um, now, the Roman Catholic Church would say salvation depends on being baptized plus faith. How can an infant have faith? The Roman Catholic Church view is that the infant doesn't have faith, but the infant's faith is replaced by the faith of the church, which God then counts uh, for the infant's salvation. And again, I, I don't see that in the New Testament. Um, I'm going to give just a little P.S. and aside here. Among um, Protestant friends who believe in many ways the same way as we do, there are, and here in the valley, there are many uh, Church of Christ churches. They don't hold the Roman Catholic view that infants should be baptized, and they don't hold the Roman Catholic view that baptism causes regeneration, but they do hold a view, I believe, that baptism is necessary for salvation. And uh, I would argue the same way, no, it's not necessary for salvation. Um, and this is, that would be an argument among friends with whom we have so many agreements, and we have a number of Church of Christ, um, um, Christian Church students at Phoenix Seminary and would agree with them in so many ways. We would say it's not necessary for salvation. It's necessary for obedience to Christ. But uh, certainly if a person believes, then that, then that faith is, is all that the Bible requires. Okay. 
But now, back to the Roman Catholic view, it seems to me that this debate about baptism is similar to Paul's argument concerning circumcision. Circumcision was a symbol of becoming a member of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and some people in Galatia were saying that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Now, Paul's response to that is, um, you're you're turning to a different gospel, Galatians 1.6. If you say that faith plus something is needed for salvation. Faith plus circumcision. Faith plus a ceremony. I think that's very much like saying faith plus baptism is necessary for salvation. Galatians 3.10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. You can't rely on works of the law. If you would be justified by law, Galatians 5.4, you have fallen away from grace. So my conclusion is no work is necessary for salvation. And so baptism is not necessary for salvation, nor does it confer salvation. It's merely a symbol. Well, then someone might say, fine, then I'm not going to be baptized. Well, if Jesus commands it, then out of obedience to him to make disciples of all nations and baptize them, then we we should be baptized out of obedience, but not because it's necessary for salvation. Does that make sense? You okay with that? What about John 3, 5? Uh, Jesus said, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Does that mean born of baptism? It says born of water and the Spirit. Does it mean born of baptism? Um, well, there are different views of it, and, uh, and some people might think born of water is physical birth, and I know that some interpreters have taken it that way. But I think probably the best explanation is it's just echoing an Old Testament passage that the Jewish people would remember that, was, uh, that used water as, an, as a symbol of spiritual cleansing. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and all your idols. I will, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. It's using symbolism of water, symbolism of a new heart to talk about the work of the spirit in cleansing people. And so I think Jesus was basically saying, unless you're born again, that's what else he said in John 3, and that is to be born of water and the Spirit, that's both in a spiritual sense, not in a physical sense. It's a spiritual washing, Titus 3.5, it's the washing of regeneration, or Ephesians 5.26, the washing of water with the Word. One more verse, and then I'm going to stop for some back-and-forth conversation here with you. What about 1 Peter 3.21, which I think Roman Catholics would appeal to, where it says baptism now saves you? Whoa. Baptism now saves you? Well, let's read the whole verse. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I have, to, I have to tell you, Jamie just preached on this a few weeks ago, but I was out of town and I didn't hear it, so I have to go back and, and listen to the sermon. I haven't done that yet. But I've, I imagine he would take the same view here that I'm going to take, and that is, Peter explains in the same sentence what he means by this. He says, baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body. That is, it's not the physical action of washing that saves you. 
but it saves you because it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is, baptism is, is saying, God, please forgive my sins and give me a clear conscience. It's, it's, it's when baptism is understood as, God, I'm trusting you to forgive my sins. It's just an expression of faith then. So I don't think Peter is saying the act saves you, but, it, but it's, the, it's, the, it's the faith which he calls the appeal to God for a clear conscience. That's what we would say, Lord Jesus, please forgive my sins. It's that that saves you. And when baptism is an outward expression of that, then the, the inward faith that you express by going through baptism, then that's what saves you. He explicitly says it's not the outward action that saves you. Am I making sense there? Okay, I've seen kind of... Okay, good. All right, now before I go to a Protestant paedo-baptist position, um, which is a little bit different argument, do you want to talk a little bit about, the, about how we differ with our Roman Catholic friends on this or just about the question of baptism in general? Pammy? When our son... When our son John um, was born, he was uh, terribly ill, and they and we had uh, had him at a wonderful, wonderful Catholic hospital um, with terrific care. But uh, they came to us, uh, these sweet little ones, and said, uh, "We've got to call the priest and have your son baptized." And and you know, at that point, you're trying to get information for your child. And you know, I looked at the little one and I said, "Oh, honey," I said, "We don't believe that. We believe he'd go straight into the arms of Jesus without baptism." But I, uh, she, she came to me. She came to Jack and I together, and then she came back to me. And I was so touched by that. I mean, she was genuinely concerned, yeah. but she was genuinely, you know, I feel wrong i mean yep, yep. uh and all but but it is something that they hold um very very dear yep. and then w- one other quick thing wayne um if there is any i love to watch baptisms at our church mm-hmm. and i love to see young people but i am really really touched when um a, a middle-aged woman or man especially a man um humbles himself and realizes that Yes, I've been walking with the Lord maybe now for 15, mm-hmm. 20 years, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but never was baptized. Yeah. And they go forward and they are baptized as an, as, a, as an adult or an aging adult. And that, to me, is a tremendous testimony, tremendous mm-hmm. testimony. And so I just encourage if there's anybody in our class that really hasn't <laughs> done that, just do it for yeah. the Lord. Yeah. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of glory. Okay, I agree. Thanks, Pammy. John, John up here in front, and then Clyde will work around. I'm probably one of the few people in class that have gone through both. I was brought up as a Swedish covenant, Yep. and they baptized. I was baptized as a baby. Okay. And then, and this has been sticking in my mind ever since you've been talking about what the Catholics say. And I said, I just wonder... I went away from God for a long time. Yeah. And I'm, I can't change it, so so be it. Yeah. And I came back here back in the last century in the late 90s or late 80s. Anyway, I just wonder if that mark, that baptism when I was a child, didn't put a mark on me that God didn't let go. <laughs> and kept working on my heart. 
when I was away. And so ultimately I came here, accepted Christ, and I I was privileged to be baptized by Wayne. Wayne Leeson. By Wayne Leeson. Oh, good. And to me, when I did it, it was, to me, simply obeying Christ and standing up in front of the world and professing my faith in him as my Savior. And there was a lot of meaning in it when it happened. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Good, John. Good. Um, Here's an alternative, John. It could be that your parents' faith and their prayers is what, rather than the baptism itself, that God saw the intention behind it and he didn't forget. Good. Okay. Now, okay, I said Clyde next, and then then back here. Yeah. Go ahead, Clyde. Start again. Churches, churches such as the Friends, yeah, Quakers, Quakers or Friends, yeah. that don't believe in water baptism, right. don't use baptism. How do they justify that based on Scripture? Oh boy, you know what, Clyde? I know that I've, I'm aware that the Quakers or Friends, and I think Salvation Army also does not practice, do not practice baptism. Um, I haven't read their original arguments to know how they defend it. My my hunch is they would say it's what's the spiritual baptism that's important. And my answer would be, look, you've got all these real water baptisms in Acts uh, and with John the Baptist and everything. So that's the New Testament pattern. That's not a common view, but you know people hold all different views. So I said I'd go over to this side. So I've got Gene over here, and then there was another one way back here. Well, Daryl's coming as fast as he can get it. I had read somewhere, and I can't think where, but the early church was believer baptism focused. Yes. But because of persecutions by the Romans and later the Muslims, uh, parents couldn't expect that their child had a chance of reaching the age of believer baptism. Yeah. And so it was really more of a pastoral concern. Yeah. Well, I, I have to tell you honestly, I don't know. What led to the switch to infant baptism, Gene? Um, very, very early on in church history, there was baptism by immersion because uh, the, the Didache, which is this, just it's around the first century. And they said, well, baptize, I think you have to baptize in running water. And uh, there are all sorts of kind of funny things in the Didache. But that means that you're, that you're immersing very early on. So... Um, and you know, my suspicion is that it would that that human beings' hearts are so inclined to start trusting some outward symbol. It's easy. All right, well, let's do this as kind of a guarantee for our ten-year-old, or for our five-year-old, our three-year-old. How about right from the time of birth? And then <clears throat> there was also a wrong early teaching in the church in this book called Shepherd of Hermas that. That baptism actually forget. Well, that was oh, that was a problem though because they they, they that baptism would for oh that gets off on a different track. But it but it shows that it was believers' baptism practice because the the um, their idea was it would only it would only forgive sins committed beforehand. So people would wait. <laughs> you know, it's like trying to celebrate your last birthday. It's really hard to know. <laughs> Anyway, that gets all messed. That's that's a that's a rabbit trail. Who's back here? Right in the corner. Yeah. Um, What's I your was name? Baptized three times. What's your name? Jan. Jan. And uh, as a baby. Yeah. And then um, when I became a Christian, going to Willow Creek, they were still in the theater, yep. and so they sprinkled at oh. that time. So I oh. sprinkled. And 
God supernaturally brought my whole family to that baptism, and I knew that God had honored that baptism. Uh-huh. But then when I joined the Baptist church, yeah. I had to be... It didn't count for them. No. Well, it did, because when I told the pastor that yeah. story yeah. about Willow Creek, he just got tears in his eyes, yeah. and he said, yes, but yeah. I am a Baptist yeah. minister, and so you, yeah. to join, you must be baptized. Yeah. And I wonder how you felt about that, that, that to join a church, you have to be baptized. Well... Um, I think it's a good idea. And the reason I think it's a good idea is that it is, it's just, it's, it's the one symbol of beginning the Christian life that's there in the New Testament. And we want people in the church to be believers. And, and so, I don't know what that is. And, and so if you want a church of believers, then, um, well, what do you have them do? Sign a statement, shake hands. I don't know. Well, why not use the symbol that is in the New Testament itself for beginning the Christian life? And that is baptism. It seems like if a person comes and says, I want to be a member of the church, and I haven't been baptized, and I don't want to be baptized, well, why not? It's there in the New Testament. So I, I think it's good. I think it's good. Yeah. Carol? I was baptized as a youth, probably 11, 12 years old. But I didn't have a full relationship with Christ until I understood the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And at that time, all of the scripture opened up to me, and I knew right from wrong. And I didn't get that through water baptism. I don't know why, but it uh, was later, and it's continuing to grow and putting him on the throne of my life instead of living as a carnal Christian. Yes the big step for me. Yep. Um, okay, over here in the front. Oh, in the back. Okay. Yeah, just Vic. a comment. Um, you have to get that closer, I think. Okay. Yeah, just a comment with the lady who said that um, she couldn't join the church because she wasn't baptized. Yeah. Uh, the way we were always taught is that you don't join the church. God adds you to the church. Yeah. And I think in your confession to Christ, automatically you're added. And now you may go to a congregation and join the congregation yeah. and have to meet you know, their requirements, that type yeah. of thing. But still, it's not a uh, requirement, I think, to be added to God's okay. church. Okay, well, then I think it's a good thing to separate between the spiritual church, which is what you're automatically a member of when you're born again, and then the local congregation or the exactly. local church. We could say local church, too. And, and then it's a question of what, what would be needed to join that local congregation. And then I think baptism is an appropriate yeah, thing. I agree. So, okay. Um, what's your name here in front? I've asked you before. John. Yeah, John Tillotson's the name. John, yeah. Um, soon to be 70 years old. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, you know, as you look back in your younger years, um, I don't remember too many things when I was a youth, but at 10 years old, I was immersed in a lake called Big Lake near Princeton, Maine, which is yep. way in northern Maine. Yep. And um, that was a memorable experience. Wow. And it really has sealed my faith yeah. since then. Yeah, yeah. Still remember it. Still remember it. Okay, and your wife wants to say something. I'm Paula. Yep, Paula. I was raised Roman Catholic. Yep. I had my three children baptized in the Roman Catholic yep. Church. Yep. And um, it was truly very important to get there. I remember the third child being baptized, uh, being very ill, 
Yeah. So afraid that child would go to limbo. Oh. Uh, if you didn't go yeah. and do that. Yeah. So, anyway, that's my story. Okay, so that's just uh, kind of reaffirming what I said as far as the Roman Catholic teaching that it's so important. I think I'm going to go through this next section, then we can see if there's any more. Any more? Have we got one more that I'm missing? Oh, yep, and back here. What's your yeah. name? Uh, Barbara. Barbara. Oh, hi. When I first became a Christian, I was baptized in a Christian church, very um, uh, renowned, and I I have a baptism certificate. Yep, and it's a Bible-believing... Right. Yep. Yeah, I knew when I got baptized what I was was doing. I was 28, I think. Yep. Um, And then over the years of... When I moved and so forth, I, I attended a Baptist church. Yep. And this Baptist church would not accept oh. my certificate of baptism. So I decided, <laughs> okay, then that church isn't for me. And then I've moved on since and have come here. Yeah. But I was just shocked that a very um, respected Baptist church would not accept my, my yep. first baptism. And I had a certificate. I wasn't yep. just... Yeah, you just went. No. <laughs> you prove it. I, I just didn't want them to, you know, I said, yep. here's my certificate. Yep. But they wouldn't accept it. And yep. I was very disappointed. And so ever since then, I, I just really. Yeah. Okay. I well, just, I'll tell you what. Um, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, uh, I, I, I think if I were in leadership of it, well, I have been on the elder board here, and I'm not sure what the policy is here. But, um, uh, a Baptist church, I think, is right to require baptism by immersion on profession of faith. But if it's baptism by immersion in another church that's a different denomination, but you did have a genuine statement that you believed in Christ, then I would say, fine, accept that. And by immersion, yeah, yeah, then I would be happy to. If I were that Baptist church, I would have accepted you. So, <laughs> how's that? Okay, let's see here. Alternative number two, the Protestant paedo-baptist position, which would be conservative, Bible-believing, Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopalians, Methodists, and others. That is, that baptism is rightly administered to all children of believing parents, from the paedo, meaning child, a form of the Greek word pais. And uh, this is also known as the covenant argument because it depends on seeing infants born to believers as part of the covenant community. Here's the argument. The argument is it's a parallel to circumcision in the Old Covenant. All Israelite children, that is male children, were circumcised when they were eight days old. And baptism is parallel to that. Colossians 2, 11 to 12, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. And so there seems to be a connection here between circumcision, that's symbolic or spiritual circumcision, and baptism. And in fact, then they would also look at the fact that a number of households were baptized, the household of Lydia, the household of Stephanus in Acts 16.15, 1 Corinthians 1.16, Acts 16.33, the family of the Philippian jailer, jailer, and Acts 2.39, the promises to you and to your children. Weren't these household baptisms, uh, including infants then? My response to that is that baptism and circumcision, I agree, are similar. And so there's some parallels, but they're also different in some ways. Because circumcision was given to all males who lived among the people of Israel, regardless of inner spiritual life. So Genesis 17:23, Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money. 
Every male, that is, even the, the uh, male servants or slaves that had been bought, bought from other nations were uh, circumcised. Everybody who lived there was circumcised. And um, he was born in your house, and he was bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised, Genesis seventeen thirteen. But the New Testament makes it clear that true circumcision is something inward and spiritual. So Romans 2, 29, a Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter. And Romans 9, 6, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So the outward symbol of circumcision didn't make one a true believer or indicate that one was a true believer. But the New Testament uh, has, it, it doesn't command that kind of symbol to be given to everybody who lives in your household or everybody who happens to live in your plantation or your estate or something like that. It's just a baptism given to believers. The New Testament doesn't talk about a covenant community made of believers, made up of believers and their unbelieving children and relatives and servants. The only covenant community discussed is the church. And so here's the essential difference. What, what makes me a person holding to a baptistic view, which is also the view of Scottsdale Bible Church, is that genuine church membership in the New Testament is voluntary, spiritual, and internal. You become a member of the true church by being born again and having saving faith, not by physical birth to parents who happen to be part of the church. And that's a, similar to a whole bunch of differences between Old Testament and New Testament. Physical birth versus spiritual being born again to be part of the community of God's people. Feeding on manna in the Old Testament, feeding on Christ spiritually in the New Testament. Physical water in the Old Testament, spiritual water, the water of life that Jesus gives us. The physical temple in the Old Testament versus the spiritual temple that we are made up of. We become the spiritual temple, 1 Peter 2.5, and so we don't have to go to Jerusalem we, uh, for the temple. Physical sacrifices versus spiritual sacrifices of praise and our own selves in 1 Peter 2.5. Physical land inherited, and now we inherit a heavenly land. Abraham's physical seed versus spiritual descendants, Galatians 3.29. So there are a whole bunch of things that the physical elements are no longer the things that are emphasized in the New Testament. And as far as those household baptisms, it seems to me that there are some indications right in those passages that, many, that the people in those houses who were baptized were people who came to faith. So Acts 16 in, in Philippi, and they, the Philippian jailer, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And the Philippian jailer rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in Christ. Well, if you're speaking the word of the Lord to people, that means they can understand it. That means it's not infants. It's just the people in the household were uh, of an age they could understand. And if they were rejoicing that he had believed in God, in order to rejoice in that intellectual knowledge that he had believed in God, you had to be more than an infant. You had to understand it. So it looks like there's an indication that, there, that everybody in the household had saving faith. Um, here, John 4:53, he himself believed and all his household believed. Uh, Acts 18:8, 8, Crispus believed in the Lord together with his entire household. They believed. And so in Acts 2, yes, the promise is to you and to your children, yes, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself, but those who received his word were baptized in verse 41. So when we connect verse 39 with verse 41, again, the pattern seems to be the only people baptized are those who actually believe. So the question is, what does baptism do? Catholics have a clear answer. Baptism saves you. 
It causes regeneration. Baptists have a clear answer. It symbolizes the fact that you've been born again. But paedo-baptists don't want to take the Catholic view, and they don't want to take this Protestant view, this Baptist view. So what, what do they say? And it's, it's hard to exactly find out in their writings. I think the alternative is to say it signifies probable future regeneration. Uh, but that's not explicit in paedo-baptist writings, not in many of them. But I'd say that isn't the view the New Testament takes. It's as many of you as were baptized into Christ as have put on Christ. Not as many of you who, as, as, as many of you who, as infants, were baptized, showing that you will probably be regenerated in the future. No, as many of you as were baptized have put on Christ. And so I would differ. And I do have some concern about practical consequences. In, in really solid Bible-believing Lutheran and Methodist and Presbyterian and Episcopalian and other churches that practice paedo-baptism, this, this doesn't immediately become a concern, but it can become a concern as the years go on. And that is, it may lead persons baptized in infancy to presume they've been born again or saved because of their baptism, and thereby they fail to feel the urgency of the need to come to personal faith in Christ. And, and it can result over the years in more and more unconverted um, church members. So there's a kind of a practical concern as well, but, but my main argument would be the Bible's teaching on it. All right, how am I doing on time? I've got about three minutes left. What is, uh, is there spiritual benefit that comes? Yes, I'll just leave that on your outline. Is it necessary? It's necessary not for salvation, but for obedience to Christ. Luke 23, 43, the thief on the cross, Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. He wasn't baptized before he died. He just died, but he went to heaven. How old should people be before they were baptized? Before they are baptized? Um, old enough to give a believable profession of faith and is there convincing evidence of genuine spiritual life and some degree of understanding. I participated in baptizing all three of our sons somewhere between the ages of 7 and 10, um, where it seemed that there was a believable profession of faith and they had an un enough understanding of the gospel. But, um, and there was evidence of spiritual life. But that practice varies from church to church, from family to family, from child to child. And so I don't, I'm not going to give a, a clear answer on that. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> but, um, we have time. Yeah, well, I mean, we can talk for. Let's see. Jack over here. I see. I can take maybe two. Okay, right here. One and two, and then I think we'll be done. Tell me your name again. Tom. Tom, yes. Tom. Yeah, we're, we come from a Lutheran church and yep. evangelical LCA. Yep. And uh, Luther wrote in volume 40 that baptism is necessary, but not absolutely necessary. But that is really not communicated in the liturgy or the ceremony of baptism okay. because it talks about now you're welcomed into the family of God, which yeah. conveys to me salvation. Yep. And I, I would like it to be taught a little more clearly, well, you know, that it doesn't say it. So, okay, Jack. Wayne, where does confirmation fit into this? Because I was born and raised a Catholic. Yep. And as I recall, I was confirmed somewhere around the age of 12. Yep which was meaning that I was now an adult yep. and could confirm to the commitment I have made. Yep. I think you just answered it. That's what it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a procedure built into the structure of churches that baptize infants where they say we've got to have something 
where at a certain age children go through a greater understanding and then go through this ceremony that shows that they've confirmed their earlier faith. So, um, and if you hold to believer's baptism, of course, you don't, you don't have that. All right, are we okay with this? Gene, last, you're, you're, you get the last shot here. Just to follow up on confirmation, uh, I was confirmed as well, and my church membership was from the confirmation oh. date. Yep. And so when I went to a new yep. church, that yep. paperwork was yep. requested. Yep, yep, and then that would, okay, that makes sense because there's some understanding. All right, we, you happy with this? I'm, I'm out of time. I can talk to you afterward. Um, whew, I just feel like I rushed right at the end, but...